Welcome to Private Equity Perspectives, a podcast by BDO USA's private equity practice. Each episode, BDO connects with leaders in the private equity space to discuss the latest trends driving deal activity, fund strategies, and portfolio company optimization. Hello and welcome to BDO's Private Equity Perspectives podcast. I'm Todd Kinney, National Relationship Director in BDO's Private Equity Practice based in New York City. I'm uh, really excited to have a couple of special guests with me here today, both of whom work in the healthcare M&A space. Just as a quick reminder, uh, the, the remarks and opinions of our guests do not necessarily represent BDO's views. First, I'd like to introduce Don Rattucci. Don's a Managing Director and Head of Healthcare M&A at Oppenheimer & Co. Good to have you here today, Don. Well, it's a pleasure to be here with you both. I actually uh, started my career in investment banking in the late 90s at, at UBS, where I was a healthcare M&A banker, and I, I worked hand-in-hand with, with John, so I've been on, uh, in the trenches with him on a number of deals, particularly in the dental space, so it's great to reconnect here today. Fantastic. After uh, you know doing 20-plus of these, we've never had uh, guests that have worked together, so that'll bring a unique perspective. So uh, as you hinted, our, our second guest is John Santema, who is the co-founder and general partner at Regal Healthcare Capital Partners. John, welcome to the podcast. Thanks. Thanks for having me. Good to be back with you again, uh, Don, as well. Appreciate it. All right, guys. Well, this should be a fun discussion. Let's jump into it. So, so Don, I know you've got a new role over at Oppenheimer, so congrats to you on that, buddy. I think I uh, already congratu- congratulated you on, on LinkedIn, but uh, it's a great move. I actually started my banking career there. Uh, so again, as, a, as an MD and head of healthcare M&A there, maybe you can tell us a little bit about your firm and how you're spending your time. Yeah, well, many thanks again, uh, Todd. Uh, appreciate that. Um, that. As you mentioned, I, I joined Oppenheimer earlier this year in, in January, and to take on that role, uh, it's been a great first 100 days or so. Um, we, in fact, the, the group has grown significantly. We've made five uh, senior banker hires in the last year alone, and we continue to look to grow. So today, our healthcare group is over 35 bankers, and it's the largest group here at, at Oppenheimer. And broadly, we're covering services and, and life sciences. On the services side, it's um, more on the payer services, behavioral services into the home, uh, physician groups, uh, such as GI, dental, ortho, and primary care, which I know we're going to talk a little bit about later on. And then on the life sciences side, it focuses on biotech, pharma, specialty pharma, tools and diagnostics, and medical devices. So we have the healthcare landscape pretty well covered. Awesome. Well, you certainly uh, have a wealth of experience to bring to the, uh, the conversation. So John, again, I know we uh, we mentioned you co-founded Regal Healthcare Capital and are a general partner there. Perhaps you can give us uh, an intro to Regal, talk about how deal making uh, for your firm has changed in the last year, and maybe just kind of how you approach deals in the current climate. Oh, sure thing. Yeah, thank you. Yeah. So, uh, so Regal is a relatively new um, healthcare focused private equity firm. We're about three years old. Um, you know, my background was healthcare investment banking. I was a healthcare investment banker for 20 plus years, uh, mostly working uh, with healthcare services businesses in the smaller, faster growing subsectors, a lot of multi-site um, as well as post-acute. Um, ultimately, I was the global head of healthcare uh, at Jefferies where I kind of oversaw everything, biotech, medtech, services all over. 
Um, but services was always close to my heart and really where my client base was. Um, after a stint as the global head of healthcare uh, at Jeffries, I had the opportunity about three years ago, as I said, to partner uh, with Dr. Dave Kim and, uh, and start Regal. Um, and the reason Dave and I partnered is our skill sets are pretty complementary. Uh, you know, I had the finance background, uh, have worked uh, extensively with, with fast-growing services businesses, but Dave is really a unique animal. Uh, you know, Dr. Kim is, was an engineer. He did operational consulting for a number of years with Arthur Anderson, he, where he helped uh, large companies be more uh, efficient, and then switched gears and went to medical school and uh, became an ER doctor. And, you know, he was in the ER and literally saw how inefficient it was uh, and decided to open one of the first urgent care clinics here in the New York market. Um, that ultimately became uh, CityMD, one of the largest urgent care chains in the country. Uh, and in addition to that, he started a, from scratch a retail dental chain, which is now 60 offices here in the tri-state market, and also started an emergency room management business, um, which is now uh, top 15 in the country. So really impressive uh, combination of you know physician, entrepreneurialism, and uh, uh, operations. And so we thought there was a market uh, to start Regal and really focus on businesses with less than 10 million of EBITDA in healthcare services that had a proven model but needed capital and more importantly expertise on how to scale quickly and how to avoid the potholes that you know high growth can uh, can put in front of you. So three years in, we have 250 million dollars under management. We've got about half a dozen investments um, and are actively looking at more. In terms of your second question, you know what's changed over the last year? COVID, obviously, you know, big factor here the last year. Right. It made for a pretty challenging deal environment because sellers were looking for um, significant addbacks that were kind of difficult to prove out. And even if you could prove them out, it was a little unclear what the longer term or medium term effects of COVID on the business would be. So it made underwriting a little bit challenging. Um, so we actually didn't do a deal over the last six to nine months as we uh, grappled with that. Um, you know, that's changed as we'll talk about. Um, uh, but, you know, one thing we've seen is telehealth, for example, getting a huge boost. That's, that's one impact. Um, and uh, mental health is another, right? Uh, a lot of attention is now coming to mental health because of anxiety, substance abuse being up and all that um, due to uh, COVID and the lockdowns. Right. Well, listen, I uh, appreciate you being here. That's a great foundation. And uh, I, uh, I'm also a huge supporter of your, uh, your partner, Dr. Kim. Great guy. So yeah, thanks great. again for being here. Yeah. So, Don, I'll Thank pivot you. to you. Yeah. Yeah. I want to uh, dive a little deeper into your take on where the, uh, the healthcare space is right now uh, in terms of investment opportunities. I, I recently read that uh, Oppenheimer's uh, Healthcare Investment Banking Group completed, uh, I think it was five primary care transactions in 2020. So there is a question here, Don. So perhaps you can touch on why you think there is uh, so much interest in primary care. Yeah, it's, it's actually a sector that, um, that's that been overlooked for, for quite a while and did not get a lot, of, a lot of attention. But as you mentioned, we did five deals alone in, in 2020. There's probably been about 50 since 2010, and um, we've worked on about uh, uh, 40% of them. I really can't say we. It's really been my partner, uh, Mark Cabrera, who co-heads um, our healthcare group and leads up our healthcare services effort. He's carved out a really nice niche in the space. And so why? Um, well, when you think about it, physicians make up about 20% of all healthcare spending, and that's actually only second to, to hospitals. And, and we're seeing the, the revitalization of the role of primary care 
physicians in patient care. Um, they're, they're often on the front lines of healthcare and they're, t- they're typically the first point of contact uh, for, for patients. So they're seeing um, oftentimes the first signs of things like depression or cancer or chronic disease or other health concerns. And they're directing the patients to get the right care in the right setting at the, with the most appropriate provider. And so in essence, they're essentially the, the, the quarterbacks of, of healthcare. So it's, it's really an interesting dynamic that's going on there. That coupled with the, what you're seeing with government programs, providing more dollars into that sector. And then the other drivers, large health plans that need to work with providers to manage um, high patient costs. And so like a lot of things, it, but it comes down to dollars and cents. And there was a, there's a number of studies that have been published recently, but there's, there was one that, that talks about for every dollar increase in spending in primary care results in $13 in savings overall downstream. And then another one, just to put some numbers around, it talks about if everyone saw in the U.S. saw a primary care provider for their first care would save over $67 billion every year in savings. And so that, that, that's a, that's a really um, substantial impact over the whole, over the healthcare system. And, and then from the investment side, look, there's the leading private equity firms uh, out there have primary care platforms and have been very successful, whether it's an Arsenal or TPG, General Atlantic, Warburg Pincus, Summit TA, the list goes on. And um, and there's also been successful IPOs uh, with the likes of Oak Street and One Call Medical. And then you've got SPACs with Cano Health. They've all added fuel to the fire. And and the, but the industry is still fragmented. Um, and so there's a bit of a, a feeding frenzy out there because there is a, an imbalance that we're seeing between um, the buy side and, and, and the sell side equation. It's it's a bit out of, out of whack. And we're even seeing it with small, single-digit EBITDA businesses that are getting into competitive competitive bidding processes at, at valuations well into the the mid to upper teens. And so it's it's right. um it's been very interesting dynamic of what's going on there. Yeah, lots of uh, lots of good data points there. So appreciate that, and I, I would say it certainly confirms what uh, you know we've been seeing in the market. So. Moving on, uh, I'll throw this uh, next topic out to both of you. Maybe we'll start with John, but maybe you guys can talk touch on how consumerization in, of, uh, of healthcare uh, is influencing private equity's approach to uh, investments. Again, John, if you want to kick it off, and then we'll uh, we'll we'll hear from Don. Sure. Yeah. yeah, I would say you know one of the core tenets of Regal when we founded it was to focus on that theme, the consumerization of healthcare. Uh, urgent care really being the poster child for a healthcare experience that's uh, better, more convenient, um, uh, better care uh, than the emergency room that it was trying to replace. Uh, so we see that as you know a continuing uh, trend. Uh, you have high deductible plans. You have consumers spending more and more of their own dollars on healthcare. Uh, and when you spend your own money, you expect a better experience. So, you know, again, we focus on companies that bend the cost curve and play on the consumerization of healthcare theme, again, making care accessible, being in network with insurance companies, building a trusted brand, providing excellent care. These are all the essential elements of meeting consumer expectations in this environment. And mm-hmm. patients will ultimately choose to go where they get the best experience and, and the best experience wins. So uh, that's, it's a very important uh, uh, theme for us. Yeah, makes sense. Don, anything to add? 
I would echo a lot with what, what John said. You clearly you're seeing uh, the rise in high deductible insurance plans and medical costs climbing. So patients are are less willing to tolerate whether it's delays or inefficiencies. They're going online, Doctor Google. People have heard about that, trying to self-diagnose themselves, and there are risks associated with that because conditions can go untreated. And even on the retail side, um, well, obviously that obviously is a lot of convenience. Um, the, the the potential pitfall there is that you're not seeing a consistent provider. We're seeing those trends, but there's clearly some areas that we that need to be focused on to make sure that patients are seeing the the right provider at the right time and not avoiding care because maybe it's at a at a high cost. So it's a bit of a double edged sword, at least from my perspective. Yeah, no, good points. Appreciate that. All right. Well, next I'd like to turn it over to our coffee break guest, Stephen Schill. He's a partner and the national leader of BDO Center for Healthcare Excellence and Innovation. Stephen is based in BDO's Orange County office. Let's hear what he has to say. Thanks, Todd. Hello, this is Stephen Schill from the BDO Center for Healthcare Excellence and Innovation. And today I'd like to talk to you about how healthcare organizations can address their own health to avoid being forced into restructuring or bankruptcy. The COVID-19 pandemic has turned a critical eye towards the healthcare system in the U.S. and has had an outsized impact on physician practices, hospitals, and senior care facilities. The government has poured in millions of dollars into these healthcare organizations, but these capital injections may in fact be masking or even exacerbating certain issues rather than addressing the root causes. For example, the pandemic ignited extended staff cuts furloughs, hurt the incomes of primary care physicians, surgeons, and exacerbated shortages in the behavioral health and advanced practice nurses space. Despite these best efforts to maintain liquidity, operating funds and capital allocations are spread thin. Yet even before the COVID-19 epidemic, hospitals were impacted by the trend of low patient volumes in emergency rooms, for example, and therefore subsequent lower new inpatient volumes, making them subject to greater financial distress. Hospitals are seeing a rising consumer frustration um, about hospital prices, uh, surprise medical billings, more uninsured patients, and increasing competition with independent facilities despite their lack of affiliation or network, for example, ambulatory type uh, settings. Provider relief funds are not going to solve these problems. Um, And this short-term sense of security uh, may actually, in fact, worsen the financial health of many of these healthcare organizations. Uh, But before hospitals become terminal, um, they can be turned around. This can be fixed. And according to the 2021 BDO Healthcare CFO Outlook Survey, 17% of CFOs say that they will pursue debt restructuring this year, and just 27% said they had more than 60 days of cash on hand. Within times of calm or crisis, liquidity is critical to maintaining operations, ensuring payroll, and having the flexibility to meet demand and opportunity. Sometimes an organization's distress, of course, becomes too wieldy. Um, And in that case, a company may need to consider some serious options. And these considerations are a preparation for restructuring. Firstly, a company or a healthcare organization uh, would want to set up an independent turnaround committee with representatives from different key areas within the organization. This is part of the overall 
organizational optimization, which promotes efficiency and reduces redundancy in activities across the first and second lines of defense. It also uh, lays the necessary foundation for, for rationalizing governance and streamlining processes and digitization. Secondly, healthcare organizations should work on rationalizing governance. Eliminating extraneous activities frees up scarce resources, management, and bandwidth while yielding direct efficiency and benefits. Most critically, rationalized governance sets the foundation for streamlining processes, as well as, in fact, for digitization, which we'll deal with a little later on. As an accountant, I always see the need for balance sheet improvement. When facing a cash crunch, taking a deeper dive into revenue streams and taking a look at the financial structure of the balance sheet is a significant um, thing that needs to be done. Um, and remember, there are always options uh, to renegotiate or cancel contracts, remove contingencies uh, through negotiation, or finding new and more efficient financing for the organization. Restructuring the balance sheet and balance sheet improvement will be a key in this process. Next, look to streamline and strengthen processes. This way, institutions can take a dramatic step on the efficiency and effectiveness curve while creating better employee and customer experiences. For example, investigating the day-to-day -day cash management for the company. Is there a way to develop a strategy to, to automate processes such as these and preserve the bottom lines? If there is, then you should take that opportunity and go ahead and do it. Streamlining processes are always easier to automate or to improve. Finally, digitization. Digitization and deploying advanced analytics can augment and magnify process redesign, benefiting both risk management, effectiveness, and efficiency. Appropriately automated processes are less error-prone and less costly. Perhaps even more important, Digitization permits institutions to, to embed automated real-time or in fact near real-time risk controls within core processes. This reduces control failures and allows for more efficient use of resources. Overall, maintaining operations throughout the disruption created by the pandemic requires an honest assessment of an organization's financial health. Once the key pain points are understood, then those factors can be more readily addressed through the turnaround and restructuring. For the 44% of healthcare CFOs who say maintaining adequate liquidity will be high or a moderate challenge, having a robust understanding of the organization's financial pain points is, is especially important. The distressed market speaks loudly to the idea that an effective reorganization or restructuring strategy will be a major contributor to healthcare resilience in 2021. Thank you all for listening. And now back over to you, Todd. Thank you, Stephen. Now let's return to our conversation with Don Rattucci and John Santema. John, jumping right back in. This next one's for you. Uh, ha has the rapidly changing pace of the uh, COVID vaccine rollout affected any of your deal discussions? And how often do regulatory changes come up in your conversations? Yeah, I would say uh, things are really heating up. Um, people are feeling a lot more confident that the that the 
the worst impact of COVID is passing with the vaccine rollout. Um, you know, we, we've even seen business travel is starting to come back. Uh, yeah. So we're really busy. As I mentioned, we did not do a deal during the peak of COVID because the adjustments and expectations were kind of out of whack. Um, but we have three letters of intent either signed or in negotiation right now and other additional opportunities coming in. And, you know, we're on the road, we're traveling. So uh, I think the I think the um, the deal discussions are, are going to generally accelerate uh, from here. And we've already seen it. Um, <clears throat> regulatory changes, you know, from a macro perspective, I think the the, the, the key thing is what Biden's uh, the Biden administration is going to do with taxes. Uh, if it looks like higher taxes, including higher capital gains taxes, are coming next year, um, that'll accelerate sales, you know, so owners can lock in today's lower rates. Other than that, we expect the overall regulatory environment for healthcare to be uh, stable uh, or supportive. Right, right, gotcha. Let's stay on the topic of regulatory considerations for the moment. Um, what policy changes has the Biden administration initiated that affect the current environment, uh, really, for healthcare investing, Don, maybe you take that and then we'll let John backfill. Yeah, I'm happy to. John mentioned about rising taxes and right. whether that's the, the 28% uh, that, that Biden has proposed versus the 21% on the cap gains. It, it, there's a lot of speculation. It'll fall somewhere in the middle at 25%. That's clearly one area. But um, more on the regulatory side, being at it from an M&A perspective, I look at it um, – there was an article just last week that talked about the crackdown on, uh, on by the Federal Trade Commission, um, not on the services side, but on on proposed mergers for pharmaceutical companies. And so they're going to be subject to um, more intensive scrutiny, um, and that's going to fall into even smaller and medium-sized uh, companies as well. So clearly it's under the microscope microscope of, of the, the current uh, administration. And then, and even other kind of reading the tea, tea, tea leaves in other areas, um, earlier this year, the the threshold for um, merger notification decreased from, from 94 million to 92 million. And while that's not a big dollar, it's only, a, it's very rare to see a decrease and and the dollar amounts just typically have increased um, over time. And um, also the FTC and DOJ, have, they temporarily suspended early termination of the merger re review. And that's only the second time that's happened. And they, they talked about just the, the um, transfer and the new administration coming in, but there have been new administrations before and that happened, hasn't happened. So if you look at all those kind of data points and you piece it together, there may be some, some tightening that we could expect on the, on the regulatory side. Yeah. No. John, anything you want to add there? Yeah, I think um, just from a healthcare standpoint, as I mentioned, I think we're going to see a stable to support a regulatory environment. Um, I, you know, I don't expect to see a big Medicare expansion, but we have seen obviously a lot of support for the ACA, uh, the the, the 1.9 trillion COVID relief uh, package included uh, an expansion of the pool of people eligible for the ACA. So we've already seen action there. Mm -hmm. um, you know, I think we'll continue to see or accelerate, you know, accelerated shift to value-based care. Um, and and other thing I mentioned, the I think the administration will have a, uh, a particular focus on supporting mental health. Right, right. All right, guys, it's uh, all good points. We'll uh, we'll move on as we've reached kind of our final theme of the uh, of the session, and it's time to bring out your crystal balls. So I'm going to ask you guys to forecast some predictions and 
You're not alone. We do this to all of our guests. So according to the 2021 Video Healthcare CFO Outlook Survey, 44% of healthcare CFOs say the pandemic will increase in partnerships across the healthcare ecosystem. So do you guys forecast an uptick in healthcare M&A activity in 2021 as well? And uh, I guess the second part is kind of what's your overall 2021 outlook for healthcare investing? Uh, Don, I'll, I'll start with you and then we'll hear from John. Sure, I'm happy to take one, that one. Look, um, <laughs> if you asked me this five years ago, I would have said there's going to be a slowdown and probably for the past five years since then, every year I would have said that as well. But I'm not going to say that this time. But look, the trends continue here. I can only be wrong so many times. And it, it's things that we've heard about before, right? It's it's the amount of capital on corporate balance sheets at record levels, $2.5 trillion based off the last S&P report. There's P funds, a trillion dollars of, of dry powder on top of that. We've got SPACs that are out there now, robust equity markets, robust debt markets. Um, and so, look, we, we think it's it's going to, to continue um, healthcare and IT are probably the top two sectors um, broadly across industries where we're, we're seeing investments made. Um, and our, our, just from our own pipeline and, and mandate, um, we've never been more busy with the, the number of active deals that we have in market as well as the, um, the pitching and bake-off activity that we have. It's, it's been off the charts. Yeah. Listen, all valid points. You're on the record for sure. So we'll uh, we'll see where that ends, if it ends up holding true. John, what are you thinking? Yeah, no, I agree. I think 2021 is going to be yet another uh, robust year. Um, uh, so I think the activity will be up. I think all the things Don highlighted are, are definitely supporting factors. I also think COVID uh, ultimately will trigger more deals in 2021. I think there are a lot of health systems that were sort of on a knife's edge financially, really we're staring into the abyss during COVID. And I think that uh, that experience will push some of them to uh, maybe make some changes that they, they weren't necessarily willing to do before and sell some assets or enter into JVs or rationalize their businesses one way or another, which you know will likely lead to, to more M&A in addition to the factors Dom mentioned. I think the other thing is like is again the zero rate zero interest rate environment. There's just a lot of money out there, and that provides plenty of financial incentive to do a transaction. I think people are starting to accept lower returns, given the lower rate environment and, and pushing up prices as well. Yep, yep, certainly good, good, uh, good perspective. All right, well, this is the last question, and we'll throw it out to both of you, as it's uh, it's all about SPACs. So a uh, a recent Keckley Report newsletter stated that in 2020. Of the more than 300 SPACs looking for acquisitions, 53 were focused exclusively on healthcare deals. So what does the uptick in SPAC activity mean for deal-making in the healthcare sector? That's the big question. Uh, John, I'm going to go to you first, and then we'll hear from Don. Sure. Yeah, yeah. look, it's, uh, I think as Don mentioned, you know, the SPAC dynamic has really opened up another pool of capital for sellers of healthcare assets, um, primarily high-growth businesses. Uh, I think in a way you could say that SPACs are filling a venture capital role um, because they're allowing the public to invest in high growth businesses, you know, companies like Talkspace, for example, that normally would wait longer to go public. Um, and so, you know, from that standpoint, it's, it's a real interesting opportunity. Uh, obviously, mm -hmm. there's a lot of SPAC money chasing a limited universe of those kinds of deals. Right. And so that means valuations will go up. But I think disciplined sponsors of SPACs and their investors are going to do well. 
Yeah. Don, anything, uh, anything else to touch on on SPAC activity? Oh, look, I think John said it well. We're, we're, we're truly adding fuel to the fire here. The meteoric rise of the SPAC uh, has been an understatement, to, to, say, to say the least. And so um, we, we think that this, is gonna, this trend is going to continue. But there's clearly some pause here. I think it's a new pocket of, of capital. I'm not sure it's going to be as, as robust as, and frothy as, as we've seen it today. Um, it, it, particularly when you've got some SPACs where you've got celebrities that are kind of leading the cause here, um, right. that, that would make people probably take a step back. But I, I think the SPACs are going to be that alternative pocket of capital that, that will be here, uh, going forward. Yeah. Well, listen, I, uh, I appreciate all the, uh, optimism and I, I think I have to agree with, uh, with you guys, which certainly, uh, be an exciting year for M&A in, uh, in healthcare. Well, Don and John, I, I really appreciate you guys taking time to join the Perspectives podcast today. Certainly a, a robust discussion, and I'm sure our audience will uh, appreciate your insights. Thanks very much, Todd. It was great to be here. Appreciate it. Yep. Thanks, Todd. Pleasure. It's a pleasure. John, good to catch up. Yeah. Guys, listen, we think the world of Oppenheimer and Regal Healthcare Capital appreciate our relationships with both your firms and wish you nothing but great luck this year. Uh, to our listeners, thanks so much for tuning in. If you haven't already, we'd love for you to subscribe, rate, and leave a review of the show on iTunes. Until next time, this is BDO's Private Equity Perspectives. The views presented by our guests do not necessarily reflect the views of their respective firms. 